you know, the league controls the trade and they control the seas. So if, if you tick them off, they're going to pull your naval support. If you lose your naval support, how can you possibly police this change that you're trying to bring about? Welcome to the Skiffy Infanti Show, Reading Rangers. I'm Sean, and I'm joined on this episode by a special guest, Brent Lambert. Hi, everyone. Yes, uh, it is I. It is you. You're here. This is <laughs> your fault that we're doing yeah. this episode. <laughs> so today's show, we're going to be talking about a book called Acacia by David Anthony Durham. It is the first book in The War of the Mean, or The Mine, depending on who you listen to. The audiobook said mean, so I'm going with mean. Which makes sense because they're mean. Yeah, very. They're very mean. <laughs> it's published in 2007 by Anchor Books. Uh, Durham did receive a astounding award for best new writer for this book, or as a consequence of this book, I should say. So, Brent, it is your fault. But before we explain why it is your fault that we're here today, I just want to remind folks at home that we do want to hear from you. Do share your comments about this and past episodes at skiffyandfanty.com/listener-suggestions. We want to put together a mailbag episode, so we need lots of stuff. So questions, etc. We do have a bunch of topic suggestions. We don't have as many comments or questions. So get them in. Let me know. I want to know what you what you think. So all right, let's get to the main event. Let's get to it. It's Acacia Brent. Again, this is your fault. Yes, this so is my fault. <laughs> you get to explain why you picked this book because I did let you pick the book we would we would discuss and then give us a brief summary. So go on. What? Why? Why did you do this to us? So I wanted to pick this book because. Um, I was like, if I'm going to talk about a book, I want to talk about a book that I feel like is was hugely influential on me wanting to be a fantasy writer and wanting to uh, kind of like tell a great story. And this book is definitely one of those books that I definitely look to as like a touchstone. And I think if anybody follows me on Twitter and they've seen me discuss this topic before, they probably heard me bring this book up. So, yeah, so it's just hugely important and influential to me. And I I haven't read it in a really long time, which is part of the reason why this is my fault, because I forgot how damn long the book was. <laughs> but <laughs> so, yeah, but, you know, I the great thing is that I still loved it. So um, the book is essentially about the story of four royal children um, in the Acacian Empire, and they basically... They basically have, have each have their own journeys after their father is assassinated. Their father is assassinated basically because of the sins of this empire. Like this empire has, they're involved in slavery. They're involved in oppressing other people. It's, it's, it basically, in a way, they feel like America. So, um, <laughs> you're not wrong. And, yeah. So these four kids, they uh, basically, they get separated because their father had a plan to protect them in the event of his death. And they each go through a journey. And it's basically about how each of them, in their own way, kind of like deal with the consequences of this historical empire and like all the horrible things that it's been a part of. And and also too, there's plenty of other characters in there. There's also like, there's also like mysterious people from the north, and you know <laughs> yeah. we have like uh, sort of Viking analogs, and it's just this really, it really feels like a immense global kind of epic fantasy. So I mean, I know we'll probably talk about this, but I think it's definitely responding to a lot of different narratives all at once. I think it's just a great story. Is why I love it. <laughs> Well, I agree with you. It is a really good story. And I was I was a little bit hesitant once I I was like, okay, Brent says it's great. Right. Brent loves it. Brent Brent is giving me like his unequivocal. It's it's fantastic. And so I got that. And I was like, all right, I'm going to give this a shot because normally bricks. I don't I just I just can't because like it's a 750 page book. 753, by the way, just want yeah. you to know <laughs> it's the longest book we've ever read for this show. You you monster. <laughs> ah, I have, I've, I've set a record. You I'm set glad a record. Cool. I've set a record. I'm happy about this. But it is really good. 
Uh, and I, I, I know I've been sending you messages about, you know, my feelings about the book because my, my biggest reference point for this book is Game of Thrones, which is popular around the same time, you know, and right. obviously it's become much more popular now. And so that's when I read it. I, I read the Game of Thrones books at, when the, the show came out. In a lot of ways, this has that same sort of epic feel, but I found the story much more engaging in a lot of ways. And I think yeah. because it actually does what you were saying, which is addresses directly some of the problems that exist in this society, right? The one thing you're saying that it's an analog for America, well, that slavery exists in this. And more particularly, and I and I know you're going to want to talk about it, Brett, which is that there is essentially like an analog for the Atlantic slave trade here, which is yeah. this thing involved with uh, the Acacian Empire is has a pact with an, another entity across the sea to send them children for purposes that are not immediately clear, but they're clearly being enslaved or used in some for something. Uh, we don't know exactly what that is because it's stuff happening on the other side of the sea, uh, but they're being sent off, and that's part of like this this quota that they have to fulfill. And so, I the the book deals with that in I thought a very honest way with. Sometimes POVs with Leoden, who is the, the the father of the king, where he actually grapples with what this means for him as a ruler of a place, uh, which you don't normally see. You don't normally right. see the leader actually sit down and grapple with the the morality and ethics of what it is that what what makes their power what it is, uh, which I thought was really cool. Well, what I like with Leoden is that. He also has to grapple with the fact that he doesn't have as much power as he thinks he has. Mm. Like, righteously, he wants to do the right thing and, and try to, like, make the world better. But in execution, he doesn't necessarily have the power to do that. And I thought that was interesting, too, where it kind of showed, like, yeah, you wear the crown, but it's not absolute. Like, you still have to answer to the interests of the league. And, you know, the league controls the trade and they control the seas. So if, if you tick them off, they're going to pull your naval support. If you lose your naval support, how can you possibly police this change that you're trying to bring about? And it's just it, it, I thought it was really interesting in that um, it, it, it is a very Game of Thrones way where like these people have to understand, like, just because I have a title doesn't necessarily mean I have absolute power to do certain things. Yeah, and I think it's worth noting here that that part part of the reason the league ships are really important is that the the seat of Acacia is actually on an island, right? And so it's not on the mainland it, it proper, which means like act, control of the sea is actually kind of essential for for the the seat of power, right? And 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 I think it was um I think it was just interesting how like with the especially with Leoden like how he kind of is perceived as almost weak for just not accepting things as they are. And then later on, his son, Oliver, is seen as the savior for not accepting things as they are. So it was this very, it was, it was this very interesting change. And as much as I hated some of the things that the mean did, <laughs> they had points. It was like, oh, now you want to be a savior? You want to be the savior for the things that you created. Like, oh, yeah, of course. Like, yeah, you, you, you're going to be on your high horse about Oh, I want to abolish the quota. Oh, I want to, you know, set people free. Well, the only reason they were in chains in the first place was because of your ancestors. Like, where do you get off, like, all of a sudden wanting to be a hero? I, I think it's great that you bring that up because a huge part of this book is the sins of one's ancestors and the way that that stain follows you around. Because both the Mean and the Acacians, or the Karin family specifically, both of them are, you know, their 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 history as, as, in terms of their ancestry is rife with struggle and pain. And in the case of the Akarans, it's causing it. In the case of right. the, the Mean, it's actually having had a curse put upon them that they have to live with. And this becomes one of the big things that Henish uh, has to deal with, right, is he's trying to, like, bring back his ancestors. You're going to, like, wreak havoc upon the world's whole thing. Uh, we won't say whether or not that's successful because that's a whole other thing. But. It's interesting that so much of this book is very much about, like, you can't, as a person living now, ignore what your ancestors have done or have had done to them, because right. that is the defining feature of who you are now. Right. And I think you bring that up, right? Like, the, the mean are like, hey, what are you doing? Like, you, your entire power structure is a consequence of this ancestry, and so now you're becoming this thing 
And isn't it somewhat ironic <laughs> that? No, and it, yeah, and even though um, Meander, even though he's a jerk, I was like, when he said that, I'm like, well, he's not wrong. He's not. And there was a there was a really interesting detail that um Durham used in the book too that I thought did a great job of like showing the consequences of ancestry when you don't even realize it. When he was kind of talking to Corinne and was like, "There's a reason that Acacians burn their dead." You you remember what you did to us without remembering what you actually did. Like it's in your ancestry. Like, and I was like, oh, that's really that's such a great little trick of world building. Like, yeah, you you do these things without even realizing why you do them. Yeah, yeah. And it made me it made me think of something. Um, I saw recently with like uh, they were talking about Black Americans and how a lot of times the way we say certain things actually you can trace it right back to um nigerian pronunciations for things and i was like wait what that's such baffling to me but it's like yeah like you hold on to these things from your ancestry and you don't even realize that you're doing it and it just kind of becomes your norm and i think that was something that was really interesting with this book is that it does a great job i feel like carrying the thorough line of history in a way that feels organic and true and not necessary because sometimes i think fantasy books when they do things like this, it's like the people in the present somehow remember every freaking detail of something that happened 500 years ago. Yeah. That, that's, that doesn't feel true. Yeah, and, and here they don't, right? They, they In a lot of cases, there's a lot of things that we that are just not known. You know, right. they, they know like the broad strokes, but it, there is there are moments in this because this book does fuse sort of the mythology of the world in, right, into the way that the different groups of people perceive themselves right the like how they were 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 founded like there's this guy uh, was it is it edifice i think is his name edifice yeah yeah and and uh there's a couple of of sort of like almost godlike uh mythical figures that founded everything but like all of that is told to us as stories right even right. the military might of the the acacian empire is all born out of stories, right? All of the different forms of martial combat that they engage in are born from stories of things that supposedly happened, which may or may not have happened exactly as described. There's just right. lots of missing detail. Yeah, I mean, the biggest missing detail, they forgot they cursed the whole people. Like, they yeah. Forgot, they cursed the whole people to undeath. And I know the book wants you to right away just like hate the mean, but it's like, I can't not right away like it's hard for me to i'm like you literally curse these people to never die but to stay trapped in their corpses like yeah. how horrible like yeah it's it, what's interesting is uh, when when it first happened uh when the the main the mean actually invaded for the first time when they they have the numrak which is this sort of like wild barbarian tall race of possibly not even humans i i don't they're wild and they yeah. apparently when they get to the sun they just take all their clothes off and like slough off all their skin after they get sunburned they're like they're there's some people man let me tell you but when they first invaded i was like oh okay i get it because they've been oppressed they've been forced to live up in the the far north where you know life is kind of sucks they don't have a lot going for them you know the the acacian empire is you know, lording over all of this stuff, and there's this quota that's going on where all these kids are being sent away. All this stuff is happening, and I was like, "But, but the the mean like they're kind of right. Like this power structure is enormously oppressive. It's not just oppressive to them, but especially to them." But the bit that started to turn me was when Hanish commits genocide. Yes, with with a form of also, I think why you probably got a little bit of the American element here is they basically use smallpox smallpox blankets here. Oh yeah, yeah. And I think that when I at the time when I first read this book, that blew my mind because I had never seen biological warfare used like that in a fantasy book before. Yeah, and I was like, holy, he really went there, and it, yeah, and. Yeah, and he was like, yeah, I'm using this and I'm going to win without having to ever lift a finger. And he does. Yeah. <laughs> Basically. Yeah. So that was the turning point for me, right? That was a moment where I was like, ooh, these guys, I get where you're coming from, but like genocide's not the answer. But I yeah. do think the book addresses this towards the end when Hanish, we have one of the POVs from Hanish where he's kind of saying like, this is not really how, he just wanted to kill the armies off. Like he didn't actually want all the people necessarily to die. He wanted certain people to die. It's still kind of genocide, right. but he, he thought that it worked too effectively. And so this is one of his conflicts with the League, which is that 
he's trying to rebuild, but the league is like, I've doubled your quota, so you got to give me all your all your babies now. Pay up. And he's like, like yeah, yeah, but I need babies. <laughs> like, what are you doing? I need them to rebuild. Yeah, like, I need people to have children. Like, I need youth. Like, you can't keep sapping away for... And I, what I thought, too, was interesting about the whole um, thing was, like, once he came to power, he found himself basically having to use the same power structure and rules that were in place before to rule effectively. I think it was interesting to see, like, his righteousness challenged. And it was like, yeah, you the the idea of changing the world is one thing, but actually being in the seat of power and having to do it is something else entirely. Yeah, and and when you think about it, all he did was he just put the the mean in, in control. Yeah, I mean the power structure itself didn't technically change. It's no. the same system. Uh, I mean, I thought it was really funny that he's talking about all the meanish women coming coming down from the north and like having to like figure out how to be like royal. <laughs> yeah, and Corinne is basically the one that has to like teach carry them. them. <laughs> yeah, basically. Yeah. I think we were talking about this before we started, but she is the one that I, like, found the most fascinating out of the four children. I felt for her because, like, the other, her other siblings all got to have these interesting journeys, and they got to, in a way, so this is one thing I think he's, as much as he's responding to Game of Thrones, I also feel like there's a little bit of Narnia happening here, yes. too, in terms of the four children being split off and then you know these close siblings having to go through these different experiences to me at least corinne is what would happen if edward had ended up with the snow queen from the very beginning and got stuck there yes and that's why i feel for her because it's like she didn't get the chance to find out who she was she had she she had to find out well and i think she had to become something to survive whereas the other three got to explore and grow and and she basically was stuck with these people that she despised and loathed for like years and yet at the same time they revered her in this weird way it was just it, yeah i just found her so fascinating oh it's interesting is so let's talk about the the kids because the 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 kids all go different directions right yeah. they're all meant to go completely different places and corinne is not meant to go obviously with the with the mean but she gets captured and is brought to them What's interesting is that all four of them become sort of mythic figures, right? There is um, Daryl, who becomes like a pirate captain. There's like a whole bunch of stuff where he's like this really renowned pirate, which is really fun. Yeah. And then there's Oliver, who's who kind of goes out to these almost like tribal. It's sort of like he basically goes to Africa. It's kind of what it feels yeah. like, you know. Yeah, he's hanging out with the, these these sort of tribal people uh, and and existing in their culture and learning learning how to be a member of that culture and learning who he is through that. But then he becomes this sort of mythic figure of the savior through that, that process. Right. Right. And there's also some like, uh, like wizards, like super sorcerers or whatever that he's supposed to un unleash. Yes. Those characters. And then there's uh, Mina who goes to a, a priestess thing, like a, a monastery basically, and then becomes like a warrior priestess. Right. And then Corinne, who is supposed to go somewhere, doesn't get to do right. that. She gets to instead become a mythic figure by, basically like working within the the Hainish mind by manipulating it from within and by the end of this book we get hints that she's obviously gonna have a much bigger play and so i think it's interesting that they all have gone wildly different directions yeah and that has enormous impacts on who follows them because <laughs> they're all followed for different reasons right right no it is is it and i found that's i always thought about narnia because i'm like okay well oliver is definitely peter and Mina is definitely Lucy. Yep. And, you know, and I feel like Dario's sort of like Susan, but Corinne is definitely Edward. Like she, yeah. she's having to face darkness in its own way. Like, cause she, she's, she never got a chance to recover from her trauma. I think the other three all had solid, stable people to kind of help bring them out of their trauma. She had nobody. She had to deal with it on her own and try to find a way to survive it and overcome it. And and it sucks because when she finally was in a place where she was maybe moving past everything that happened to her, she had to hear the guy that she was vulnerable with say in his sleep he was going to murder her. Yep. <laughs> yeah, well, and that's interesting because so you're using the, the Narnia example. And one of the things I was thinking of with Karen was, 
in a lot of ways, she's like Sansa, but Sansa who actually figures out her shit much sooner. Yeah. Because one of the things that's happening here is, is she's like Sansa. She's been captured by the people who've killed her father and have taken all her power from her. And she has to exist within their universe. But then she has this this sort of realization of, like, I can learn to live in this society. And it seems like they're going to accept her in. But then, obviously, there's this horrible thing she realizes. And that's when all of her politicking that she's developed over this time snaps in immediately. And she starts figuring out, like, oh, I can manipulate. So she's got, like, uh, what's his name? Rallos, the guy from the North. He's, oh, like, yeah. sleazy. That sleazy guy. Nasty just, guy. Just, just a worm. <laughs> he is a worm. Absolutely. But she manipulates him expertly. Yes. Right? Yes. She sort of figured out, I know how to say the right kinds of things. And I, and I like that especially because I think you're right. It's a, it's a lot like this is like if we take Narnia, but we make it a little bit less Christian-y and make it more more kind of dark. Yeah. Uh, not dark in like a grim dark way, but much more more serious, if, if that's the right word. Yeah, because they're not necessarily going to different worlds, but in a way they are. Like they're actually they're being taken from this safety of their island yeah. little empire and being spread across the world. And and, and two of them get a, a replacement father figure, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, no, that was very interesting. Like and and I think that's why they came out so well adjusted. Like they <laughs> yeah. had someone who could fill in the gap, whereas all Corinne had was scorn and anger and frustration. And I think even in the book it talks about like how like that that's what got her through. It's just feeling scorn and disgust for these people who she had to live with every day for almost a decade. Yeah. And she had to kind of like learn to interpret what they were, what they were doing because like they don't necessarily directly treat her poorly. That's not like they beat her. They're not like taking her out like and, and doing like big shame walks or any of that, but she learns to interpret the, the very particular jibes that Hainish sends at her, other main uh, throw at her, and learns to understand what they really mean, that she is right. being insulted or she is being attacked. Uh, there's even a great moment when she's like in, like they've gone vacation at one point, and, and she starts t- reminding herself that by telling the stories of like the different things she knows, the reality is that she doesn't know the true story, uh, that the true story of the history behind these things might actually be much more complicated than she ever learned. And it sort of, I think, breeds a little bit of resentment for her family, who yeah. we know that we know from seeing Leoden's perspective that he means to tell his kids all this stuff, but he never gets the opportunity because he's, he's obviously killed before he can do it. Yeah, he's assassinated. Yeah. yeah. So there's this element of the story is the kids kind of coming to terms with the sins of their fathers in a in a way i was thinking a lot of like black panther kind of does this as well yes there's a little bit of that kind of going on here which i think is i really like that i gotta be honest this is i i want more fantasy that can be kind of gritty and dark but also like deals with the moral complications of the world it exists in and doesn't shy away from those questions yeah no absolutely and and it does a it does it does a good job and he does it in a in a lot of ways that I feel like are not necessarily subtle, but he's not overly he's not beating you over the head with right. it. There was a part I think where the league guy was talking with Hanish about explosion on the platform and how they had to ultimately kill a whole bunch of uh the kids that they were gonna ship away. And it was because of Daryl. Daryl thought he was doing something noble and maybe in truth he was, but it had consequences. And I like that little thing i was like yeah like i think it did a lot of um the story did a lot of good things about like making you question like okay they're good they might be good but is every action they take necessarily a good one yeah every time the hanish and the league men talked like i feel like he was just getting punked by them basically <laughs> uh, but the, the hanish getting punked by the league or the other way yeah yeah the league was just punking him every time they talked they're like look we're the ones in charge you're here because we put you here like, do as we say. Yeah, that's a really good point, too, because like, one of the things that's a big deal in this, this entire book, which is that almost all of the power structure of this empire is entirely contingent on the League and the people that the League works for deciding that that power structure should stay in place. And yep. what's fantastic is I think you're right. There are moments when the league is talking to the league ambassador is talking to Hanish. And I love the audiobook makes the league ambassador really like wormy, snaky, like really makes him just kind of ooh, like <laughs> kind of grody. 
But every time he talks to them, he's just like always reminding him just a little bit of like, just remember, <laughs> remember, I've done this already. You don't have a choice. I, this was me being nice by letting you know so you weren't surprised. <laughs> right. Like the, when they snatched up those thousands of kids, kids. It was like it already happened yesterday. It happened yesterday. I'm just telling you so you're not shocked when it comes to your attention. Right. Which in a way is like, but that's that is the shock because you're being told yeah like no you just told, like wait what do you mean like you did it without asking yeah. me and it, and it was interesting because i think at first hanish wanted to be ticked off but then he had to realize like i actually i need these people like i can't like rule without yeah, yeah. and of course and of course the, the the big problem towards the end of this book is that uh corinne manages to convince the league not to leave so much as just to just back up. Take their hands off. Yeah, just don't interfere. Just don't let it play out however it plays out. Which I think is, again, like it's this other moment of, of a reminder, which is that the League, their interests are not the same interests as any other power group in this land. That the quote-unquote known world, it's called the known world, which is also very, very sort of imperialistic of like, this is the known world. And it's like, yeah, but other parts of the world are known to other people, so that's also the known world. What are you doing? <laughs> Yeah, and it comes, I mean, having read the whole trilogy, it definitely comes back to bite them in the butt to, like, not recognize that. But it, it just speaks to, I think, like, the way, like, you can, in trying to glorify yourself, you can forget things that you probably shouldn't forget. You probably shouldn't forget there's a hundred-something pissed-off sorcerers at the end of your world, just who have been hanging around waiting for a chance to come back. Yeah. That's probably not a detail you want to forget, but, you know... And yet they do. <laughs> they did. They forgot it. Yeah. No, and that, you know, that was one thing, too, I liked about... um about I liked how they played with magic in this world. Like... Yeah. Because I feel like... And I don't have a problem with magic systems. I, I, I like rules and, you know, things, and sometimes that's cool. But I like that this book is like, look, we don't know what the hell it does. It it happens, and sometimes it happens in a bad way. And yeah, well, because the the sorcerers, right? It, they're they've been they've like been corrupted. There, there's this whole thing in the mythology which I just loved, which is that the the gods or the the godlike entities that basically formed everything. There's a, there's a god language. There's god speak, and so the with the word the correct words are spoken, they can bring things into existence. But like these poor sorcerers have like been banished to the ass end of the kingdom, and have yeah. basically lost like their speech has become corrupted. So whenever they cast a spell, it has a negative consequence. It's like it's one positive and one negative, and sometimes that can work in your favor, but sometimes that can be quite disastrous. So like with the mist, uh, because I we we haven't mentioned, but. Oh, yeah, we haven't mentioned the mist, yeah. Basically, the populace has been partly pacified by the League bringing in essentially some kind of narcotic that everybody takes, which I don't know what exactly the analog is. It's kind of like, I guess, cocaine and, and tobacco, kind of? I think so, mostly, especially because it like causes this euphoria where you, where you see the thing you most want to see. So, yeah, yeah, I think it's probably it. It's definitely meant to be. I think it's definitely a critique of like how, especially in the '80s, the government was bringing in drugs into certain communities to, you know, dismantle progressive movements and whatnot. So I think that was one thing that this book was kind of saying, like the the empire is using this drug to keep people from realizing just how unjust some of these things are. There might be some, like, reference here maybe to, like, the Opium Wars. I can see that, too. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think I think it was definitely meant to be, um, it was definitely meant to be this analog, I think, for um, the ways that, like, the government, or in this case, the Empire, tries to distract people from noticing the injustices around them. Like, oh, yeah. don't worry about all these missing kids. Just keep smoking this stuff and you'll be happy. Yeah, you'll be fine. Everything's good. Yeah. <laughs> Don't worry. <laughs> and I even and I, I I almost found Mina's story to be almost a smaller, more condensed version of the Miss story in a way, because we had this religious figure that she became, basically telling people all the time, "Oh, don't worry about your kid getting snatched up by a giant bird. That's just the goddess. The goddess required it, and you shouldn't question it." And to me, it felt like a smaller, more like violently compacted version of what the mist and quota was doing to the rest of the world. 
Yeah, I agree. Yeah, and she she sort of deals with the consequences of that system uh, because there's a moment in which like she promises someone something she shouldn't promise them, and then their child is snatched from them anyway. And so there is a lot of like interesting ways that this book is dealing with. You're you're running an empire, and you need people to be just to kind of accept what is. Even right. if it's things that are not what you would normally want to accept, like right. having your child snatched from you. And so if in a lot of ways, this empire has had to find ways to get around that. And the well, in this case, the League has offered it as a as a way to get around that of like, we'll give you this stuff to help pacify people. And it's it's really effed up. Yeah, <laughs> to no, say it, the least. <laughs> it is it is supremely screwed up how they're doing this and they're just they're basically making people into these addicts that are just desperate for another hit or miss in order to not feel whatever horrible thing that they're feeling. And I know Leoden himself was a mist addict and he yep. was he was smoking it in order to see his wife that passed away. Yeah. But the, I I also loved how um how they use that to explain the corrupted magic later where like the Santoth basically try to help when finally the, the, the shift is happening and the kids have kind of started coming back together and they're going to fight to take back their kingdom or whatever. The, the Santoth, the sorcerers try to help by getting people off of the mist, but instead <laughs> they get them off, but they get them off by turning the mist into a nightmare inducing drug and not a dream inducing one. Right. And they're like, we, we weren't trying to do that, but it's the magic. We can't talk right. Like, <laughs> yeah, it, it, but it still worked. It just, yeah, it worked. It's just <laughs> not the way they wanted to. Yeah. yeah, horrifying effect. It was like, oh, we didn't mean to cause nightmares, but it, <laughs> at least it worked. Our bad. Yeah, like, oh, sorry you're screaming in, in trauma over there. Like, I didn't mean to. <laughs> I, I do like the way the magic also plays out in that, like, if you do a spell, you have to have a way to undo it. There has yeah. to be some way built in to undo it, which... I thought if there was going to be a rule, I like that rule. That's a simple enough rule, I think, to like build out of, which 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 it does in um, later books. The the magic system, I think, is I I should say this book doesn't necessarily present a lot of the magic system, except yeah. this sort of basic rule, which is that magic can be undone, and then obviously with the the sorcerers, their magic has been corrupted, and so th- it doesn't work according to plan. Oopsies. Right. But I do like that a lot of this book is dealing with the fact that magic does exist, but the people who are most of our POV characters don't really know that. Like, magic is like a thing from stories. It's not a thing that is actual in our everyday lives. So when they finally encounter it, it's actually kind of almost strange and liberating experience. So Oliver, right, with the sorceress, because he has a connection with them that he creates... But that connection is like through his mind. Like he has like this strange mind, whatever you call that. Like the uh, like there's a tunnel that like yeah, exists into his brain. <laughs> it's not quite telepathy, but it is like some sort of like almost like soul connection that he has to him. And I yeah. um I think part of it is because so the sorcerers were cursed by his ancestor having been generations ago, Ten Hoden. Ten Hoden made them like get the hell out of Akasia and they had to march all the way to the end of the world. Now they can only return by the the blessing of another of his one of his direct descendants. So I thought that was interesting until and it, it definitely um I definitely liked seeing I like to see them cut loose at the end, like after untimely deaths happen and, <laughs> and they just like lose their they just lose their crap and like it's like magic left and right like forget it <laughs> like i think there was one point that made me go i wonder if like he took this from dark willow where like one of the santoff just ripped the skin off of like this group of soldiers and didn't even think about it just like threw it off and like kept going <laughs> like god this is a, i mean I, I like that he definitely earned this being God language. Like, yeah. Every time he described the magic, I was like, yeah, this is definitely divine. And this is not something people should probably mess with. Yeah. I mean, in a lot of ways, this is uh, throughout this story. I, I think our our different power structures kind of learn that, yeah, there's other forms of power you can use to come into power. But those things have other consequences. Right. Magic is not necessarily your friend. Right. God speak is not necessarily your friend. 
right? It is extremely dangerous and you need to be careful, right? The the numrec are not necessarily your friend, right? They might be able to get turned against you and the thing that was your advantage may now be your doom. And this is all throughout this. And, you know, at at the same time, it's like some puppet masters on the other side of the sea, like pulling the strings, you know? Well, and I think that also was a great escalation in the book to kind of establish, like, there's way more to this story. So sit tight in the fact that, like, the numbrate got kicked out. Like, who's kicking them out? Like, <laughs> Like, if these people are basically literally tearing through armies like nothing, and yet wherever they're from, someone kicked them out. Like, yeah, what are you dealing with on the other side? Like that—that that is terrifying. That is terrifying when you think about it. Like the unknowns of this story. You know, there's there are all these people. Like, there's literally a line that you're referring to, which is like, you know, these people that come from the league. Like, a lot of them were kicked out of wherever they're from. And it's like, right. well. Well, some of these people are really scary, you know? Like, right. So, it, so what's over there? <laughs> and it almost makes you be like, well, I kind of see why the League doesn't want to change anything. Yeah. Like, yeah, if that's what I'm dealing with, if I'm dealing with something that makes the numbrek look lower tier, yeah, maybe maybe we should just keep sending these kids over. Like, I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah. it definitely sets up in a lot of ways this book that it's sort of like, uh, it's like Babylon 5 does this, which is that, you know, that there are all these like powers at play, but like on the grander scale, there is something else at work. The Pais uh Xenoweth novels have this, which is there's a power structure in place that's imperialistic, but they're there because there is a power that's outside that may be even more dangerous. And if there's a power vacuum, they will flood in and they may not be, quote unquote, as nice. Right, right. And so you're dealing with these these different layers of power structures you know, we're looking at things where it's obvious that this is wrong, right? The quota is wrong. Right. And yet the potential downside of this not existing may be even more horrifying. And right. what do you do in that context, right? This is like, it's morally ambiguous because on the one hand, we're doing a wrong thing to prevent an even more wrong thing. And I, and I think that to me, that's the kind of like darker storytelling I like. I like the storytelling where, Neither choice is great. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> neither choice is an ideal choice, but we have to make a choice. Like, and, and, and I think that's, unfortunately, I think that is true to a lot of society like in general. It's like sometimes neither choice is great, but you got to make one. And I think that's why I kind of like uh, steering back to my girl, Corinne. I think that's why I like I like her, because at some point she's like, you know what? No, this is these people want to play this game, and this is how you have to play it. Well, I'm going to play it better than anybody else. She she manages to come out on top. Now that you say the Sansa comparison, I see it. Like it's seared into my mind now. I'm like, oh my god, she is Sansa. She is. Although I I will say that the mean are a little bit less. They're less horrible. Yeah, yeah, they're not as blatantly cruel as the Lannisters. Like. Hainish is he, he's a morally conflicted man I don't think he's like he's not sadistic at all yeah like he does actually care for her yeah which which I think is important because towards the right because there's this whole thing where like he needs to sacrifice a, a member of the Akaran line in order to bring back his ancestors and then will wreak havoc or some horrible right 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 he seems actually conflicted about using Corinne because it does seem like he does care for her which yeah. I wasn't expecting because I, I don't know what exactly I was expecting, but I wasn't expecting that there was going to be a kind of romance here. Yeah. Yeah. It caught me off guard. You know, as conflicting that it is, you know, it's it's yeah. it's kind of a little bit kind of messed up because the conditions in which it occurs, it's like they're not exactly what you would call like this is definitely first date material. But <laughs> yeah, no, it is not. And it wasn't like it happened on even footing either in any way. But at the same time, I I do like the fact that I feel like the story at least earned it. Like, because sometimes some stories like this, they don't deal with the ickiness of it or they don't deal with, like, the complications. It's like, oh, I fell in love with my conqueror. Oh, how awesome. They had to go through these stages of, like, being vulnerable with each other, trying to earn the other's trust, the other one trying to, you know... Hainish tried to very make it very clear, like, look, I'm not trying to make you a prisoner here. Like, I don't want you to feel that way. And I honestly think he would not have done it if it came to it. I don't think he would have. I don't think he would have did it. And I, I think 
unfortunately, what happened between the two of them was she just heard him telling them what he needed to tell them to get them out of his head. I mean, it's 22 generations of dead people talking to you at once. Like, I'm not going to tell them what I'm really intending. Like, I'm just going to say what I need to say so you can get the hell out of my head. But yeah, so I, I don't think he would have done it. But I think at that point, she had been scarred by so many men in her life. Like, there was no there was no moment of like trying to be rational about it. It was like, he wants to kill me. Forget all of this. Burn it all. <laughs> yeah, there's an element of, of for Corinne, her way of dealing with things now is to assume assume the worst. Yeah, she assumes treachery. Yeah, she, she assumes treachery, and then she comes in with a plan, and a plan B, and a plan C, which is something that the others, like Daryl to some degree has to, because he's a pirate, right. but it's not quite the same, because he's going into every situation of like, I'm the one committing the treachery, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah. You know, Oliver doesn't have to deal with this because, he, for the most part, he just has to learn how to exist in a culture that's not his own. Right. With Mina, she does towards the end when the the priesthood like tries to clamp down on her becoming warrior priestess, you know, basically becoming Zena, uh, <laughs> you know. But it Corinne has to deal with it in such extreme measures. You know, because she's surrounded by conquerors. Right. You know, people who literally murdered her father. Right. Right. Sent the orders to do that. That is a lot of trauma for, I mean, she was a young kid when this happened, right? Right. So she's dealing with a lot of trauma. And even though the minor trying to be nice to her, that power dynamic is, you can't ignore it. You can't ignore it. And and and, and I also like, too, that the book, even before the, uh, Leoden's assassination, you kind of already knew Corinne was damaged. Seeing her mother die and also having to deal with the realization, like, I look just like her, is, like, was already messing with her. You could already tell that she was kind of going through some things. And then she got Ilgulden, who was already and all about her and all in love with her and was ready to, like, exalt her and make her this queen of Ashunia, and he dies. Yep. So she Horribly. Loses, yeah, horribly. <laughs> so she loses her mother. She loses the first guy who, like, she really may have felt some feelings for. She loses her father. Then, despite all that, she trusts Larkin, the guy who was supposed to actually take her somewhere and get her away from it all. And he turned, he, he betrayed her and sold her to the mean. So it's like literally every time a guy has come into this poor woman's life, they have disappointed her severely in some way. So when it heinous does it, she cracks. And I, I can't blame her. Yeah, it's like the last straw. Yeah. Which is unfortunate for her siblings, who I'm sure would really love to... Because her interests kind of are going in a slightly different direction from her siblings. Yes. Which is is really important towards the end of the book. for, And obviously the next books will deal with it in some degree. So it's it's definitely going to create some some serious tension. Also, there's like a death of one. One of the siblings dies. Yeah, one of the siblings dies. But yeah. And I, I got to be honest, I was not expecting that. Me neither. I mean, this is this is me rereading the book. When I first read the book, though, I was not expecting that. It caught me so off guard. I was like, I was like, he's really subverting these 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 expectations right now. Yep, because the way that it's set up is, it, I, I won't say much more because I think if folks should read the entire book. Yeah, but it's set up in a way where you're like, this person is is not the one that's going to die. At least not in this book. No, no, yeah, not right now. Like he had you 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 reading it, you were like, oh, he has more to do there's much more to yep. do for this character but nope yeah i guess i have not read the other book so i i mean maybe he comes back from the dead i'm assuming not but <laughs> you never know that's <laughs> giving me a look it's giving me such I, a I look know, right i now. mean oh like no i can't i can't like, <laughs> oh, oh jesus can i can i say though that something that i wasn't expecting but i was super happy about and i know i'd mentioned it in dm to you it was so nice to see that there was a father figure who actually loved his kids <laughs> loved them loved them dearly like he loved he loved those kids severely yeah like yeah he was all about trying to do what was right for them. Yeah. And that that was cool. I loved it so much because just so often, especially in fantasy, like father figures are assholes, you know? Yes, yes. Especially when they, the more powerful they are, the more like of a jerk they are. Yeah. Like, it's always like, I'm I'm training you to be strong by being a total dick to you and beating you and doing horrible things and calling you horrible names. And this is a yeah, father who's yeah. like, 
very conflicted because he knows he wants his kids to live in a in a different version of the world that he has uh, existed in. He loves his kids so much, right? And he's actually I love like all these little bits where he's like very sad with the fact that all his kids are getting too old for him to read stories to them. <laughs> yes, that is so sweet. Or like, unfortunately, right before he gets assassinated, they go play in the snow, but. I liked it because it endeared you to his character and like you were actually sad when he died because it's like you knew it was coming. There was like no way you knew it wasn't. You knew it was going to happen, but it was just yeah, yeah, you actually felt something when it happened. Yeah, which I think is really important because in a lot of cases, I feel like fantasy can sometimes have a problem of not enough characters who get murdered who are morally questionable figures not they're not always likable for the right reasons like some of these people like the scoundrel right like oh he's a scoundrel yeah yeah, but that's sometimes i feel like what we have is like characters die but they're just like bad people and so i don't necessarily feel like i feel bad that they're dead because i don't necessarily like murder but i don't feel that bad whereas in this you're like when it happens you're like oh my oh my god (laughs) Like, <laughs> yeah, it's like you, you were like uh, this, 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 he was a flawed man, but he was trying to be good. That's, that's the thing. Trying to be a good person in really screwed up circumstances where his power is limited. And and I think the weight of trying to be a good man is what like was just breaking him down in this story. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I enjoyed that because it's like, this is what the complications of like, privilege and power can actually do to someone sometimes like sometimes you can recognize your privilege and not necessarily have the power to to completely break down the system that gave you that privilege yeah that and i think that was his struggle so it was it was yeah it was interesting it was very much like it made his death have impact yeah i think that's really important and the writing here in general uh durham is is incredibly talented you know there there isn't a wasted page even when he's just info dumping on you it's important it's important even more so on this like reread i was like how he said he's setting all these things up and and planning and building and it all is all building to this crescendo that like it all comes together like yeah he's just he's a he's a masterful writer and i'm forever like jealous of his skill but it's definitely, it was definitely hugely influential for me because when I read it, I was like, oh, I didn't know we could use fantasy to critique these things or to critique them in the way that he did. Like, especially the quota system. I was just like, oh, we can actually embed uh, critiques of, you know, colonialism and of the transatlantic slave trade in the slave, not slavery, into fantasy and make it work. I What I loved the most about it wasn't even so much the way the quota system worked but how he constantly made sure to point out that people knew about it and turned a blind eye to it anyway yeah people were clearly uncomfortable with it but they weren't uncomfortable enough to challenge it yeah i i think that's if you're going to take something away from this book it's kind of what you're saying here which is that this is a is a work of epic fantasy it's a trilogy of books of very large books but it's a trilogy that is not just having things be there and then having like, oh, like it's the hero's journey and like all of it. No, it, the, there are things happening that this book is criticizing and exploring in a lot of depth that it doesn't necessarily want to pull punches about. It really wants to explore the moral and ethical dimensions of these systems through a fantasy novel that has some familiar trappings that we would expect of, of epic fantasy. And I think that's that's this is 2007 and so you know obviously we're seeing more of that happening now but i feel like this is existing in a point in time in which there's sort of like three fantasy traditions there's a sort of like super grim dark where everything's just like i guess gotta like murder hobo everything and then there's the kind of game of thrones style which is like the the it's gritty and it's you know it's like very eurocentric style and like bad things happen to lots of characters and then there's a big battle at the end and then there's like that classic fantasy and this one is seems like it's reacting to a lot of those it's definitely a conversation like that's what and you know i feel like the i feel like the best works of genre tend to know what they're in conversation with and actively actively try to make sure the reader understands to what they're in conversation yeah especially and you know especially the not political class but that powerful well they're political they're definitely political but they their power comes through money yeah 
And isn't that isn't that relevant toward today? Like, <laughs> <laughs> very true. Very true. The people who are the front facing power are actually shackled to the people with money that actually really drive the agenda. It it holds up. It holds up as a book for at least for like I think modern audiences. I agree. Yeah, I absolutely agree. This is a book I, that's worth reading. And I don't say that about doorstoppers very often. <laughs> so I, I enjoyed it. Like I you know sometimes when you revisit books, you're kinda like a little leery like you're like oh i don't know is it gonna hold up or is it gonna be cringy things but i didn't really feel that with this so that that kind of made me happy well that that's good to hear brent because i'm glad i got a chance to read it even though it was it was a long book you absolute monster <laughs> i i apologize I, I told him i was gonna apologize on the air because i was like i have to apologize for this <laughs> 700 months page monster that i like thrust upon you it's okay it's okay well, okay, I think we've done it. So I think it's time to get to that closing out point. So uh, thanks again, everybody, for joining us for Reading Rangers. If you'd, again, like to let us know what you thought about our conversation about this book or about the entire series, if you've read it, uh, again, skiffingfanty.com slash listener suggestions. You can also follow us at skiffingfanty on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the newsletter at skiffingfanty.com slash newsletter. And obviously, if you like what we do, we'd love your support at patreon.com slash skiffingfanty, where you can vote on torture cinema polls and other kinds of things. And also leave us a five-star review on iTunes, because that'll help other people find the show and also let Apple know that they should sponsor us and give us millions of dollars. You can find me at Sean Duke on Twitter, seanduke.net, and patreon.com slash thejoyfactory. And Brent... What about you? Where can folks find all your stuff? Okay, so um, you find me on Twitter at uh, Brent C. Lambert. Um, I work with Fire Magazine, so firelitmag.com. Um, you find me there. Also find me running the Twitter for the most part, so you can check me out over there. Also, too, in September, if you haven't already heard, we have FireCon coming up. So um, I am the programming guy for that. So, you know, busily working on getting that straight. So. Yeah, if you haven't bought a ticket, go ahead, get one. We'd love to have you. Uh, it's a great event. Like, I think, honestly, I can say this with with some degree of, I guess, uh, bragging behind it. But it was one of the better things about uh, genre fiction, I think, last year. So it should definitely, should definitely come through. I, I think you mean it was one of the better things of last year, period. Because, <laughs> oh, my gosh, it was one of the best events of, of last year. Just I, I'm not saying it made 2020 worth it. Because I I don't think that 2020 was worth it as a year at all, but but at least I had that one glowing, lovely thing that I got to experience. So, A+. Plus. <laughs> so yeah, see, glowing recommendation. So yeah, grab a ticket if you don't have one already. Absolutely. I will be there. Obviously, Brent will be there because he's involved. So, <laughs> yep. And lots of other lovely folks. Well, cool. Well, thanks. Thanks for... Uh, Thanks for coming on, Brent, and talking to me about this book. This is awesome. Yeah, thank you for reading The Doorstopper. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. Yeah, it was fun. So uh, on that note, I got to make it a little bit awkward. Uh, and so I just want everybody to know that uh, I will also be starting an island kingdom very soon on uh, Whidbey Island in the Puget Sound. So if you do not want to be part of the Duke Empire that will be opening in Washington, you're unfortunately going to have to move to Idaho. So, uh, Duke Empire coming 2022. You're welcome. <laughs> and on that note, awkward ending and scene. <laughs> If you want to support this show, you can go to patreon.com slash skiffyandfanty or skiffyandfanty.com, our website, where you can get access to all of our fancy things. Our music comes from Holy Mole. You can support him and his work at patreon.com slash holy mole. Thank you for listening. <laughs>